Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. I said, maybe we should do something really ambitious and think about telling a history of India. And I thought one way we could do it was through individual stories. In this episode, I speak with author Sunil Kilnani about his book, radio series, and podcast titled Incarnations, India in 50 Lives. India's past is rife with great stories and myths, though it remains a curiously unpeopled history. In an article for The Guardian newspaper, William Dalrymple writes, Both biography and narrative history are still oddly absent from the contemporary Indian literary landscape, so much so that it's difficult to think of an up-to-date and really first-class biography of a single Indian pre-colonial ruler. Sunil Kilnani, professor of politics and director of the India Institute at King's College London and author of the critically acclaimed The Idea of India, among many other books, is working to change this reality. In Incarnations, India and Fifty Lives, Sunil brings to light the biographies of 50 Indians across 2,500 years who have shaped the history of India, and in many cases, the world. He recently presented Incarnations as a BBC Radio 4 program, subsequently released as a Radio 4 podcast. His book of the same title is published in Britain by Alan Lane and in the U.S. by Farrar strauss Sheru. Sunil visited the Getty to advise on an exhibition project we are supporting in Mumbai, and while here gave a reading from Incarnations. I met with him one Sunday afternoon to talk about his project. Uh, you begin your book with a provocative first sentence, India is a curiously unpeopled place. But of course, to anyone who's traveled in India, it's anything but unpeopled. Its population is more than one and a quarter billion. And if you go to the livepopulation.com website, you can watch it grow in real time by a birth every one or two seconds. But I know that's not what you meant by unpeopled, is it? No, in fact, it's exactly to challenge that uh, statistical or collective conception we have of India as this kind of great teeming mass uh, of people um, and to try to individuate that um, and to individuate that through history that I really set out to write this book um, and, and get engaged in this project. Because what I meant um, by that rather provocative sentence of India being an, an unpeopled place was that if we think about figures from Indian history, at best you might be able to name three or four, Mahatma Gandhi, maybe Ashoka, maybe the Emperor Akbar, but then the sort of recall tails off. And what I wanted to do was really say, look, across Indian history, there are these extraordinary individuals and those are the people that I'm talking about um, in, 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 that, in that phrase, um, to try and bring alive through individual stories the, the, the rather collective, monolithic view we have of India sometimes. Mm. T tell us how the book got started, because it, it's a radio series, a book, and now it's a podcast. Uh, was it conceived as a radio series first and then it became a book? Was it conceived as a book and then it became a radio series? Were they conceived together? Yeah, well, I had been thinking for quite a bit of time about how to tell a history of India, a complicated story about the Indian past, 
which could also reach a wider audience. Um, I've been thinking about this for, for some years. Um, and, you know, how to bring some of the really exceptional scholarship about India that's been developed in the last three or four decades across the field, from art history to science to philosophy to, to social and political history. And as these things happen, um, you know, I was at dinner with someone from the BBC, and, and they said they were wanted to do something about India. And I said, maybe we should do something really ambitious and think about telling a history of India. And I thought one way we could do it was through individual stories, because I felt those were ways of attracting people into particular intimate life stories. And the BBC was very responsive. So in a sense, it was conceived both as a writing project, a book, but then when the opportunity came to do it as a radio series and then the podcasts, um, I, I jumped at that because I thought, you know, particularly for a younger audience, that was a medium that could be attractive to them. But I always thought that the radio and podcast series, I always hoped that they would be a kind of gateway drug to the book. <laughs> so, so how did you choose your 50 lives? Let's get to the yeah, heart of the matter. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I started, I started, I guess, with over a hundred um, and had to bring those down. I guess th th there were um, about, let's say, four um, criteria that, that helped me make the choices. Um, one was that uh, I wanted lives that would allow me to talk about what I saw as some of the central conflicts or contradictions in Indian history. So, for instance, uh, the tensions between religions. Uh, the conflicts between castes and the whole question of caste, the um, question of regions and regionalism in India, how that all fitted together and the rivalries and cooperation that could be found there, the issue of gender uh, as a line of contest and conflict, and then the what, what I see as attempts to express individuality in what could often be quite a stifling social context. So, so lives that allowed me to speak to those issues uh, were, were, were one criteria of, of selection. The other, and, and this is really the sense of the title, Incarnations, was that they were lives that um, had afterlives. And what I mean by that is lives that are being used today for political struggles and political battles. So, for instance, the Buddha, whom I begin with, today is actually a very important leader for the India's Dalits, or the former untouchables, as they were called. So these were lives that are being picked up and recycled today. The, the third was that um, I, they all had to be, as we say in India, expired. They were, they were dead. They were, they were no longer alive, uh, so they're historical. And fourthly, they had to be lives that, where we had some documentation, some primary evidence of them having actually lived. So not mythic figures, not figures that were just surrounded in legend. Yeah. And so you start with the Buddha. Um, uh, I was surprised in a sense that not that the Buddha was included, but that on the terms that you describe that the Buddha would be included, because I didn't know that we had adequate documented evidence of his life and thought. I mean, we have his followers and the, the followers of his followers who write down uh, stories about his life and about his his enlightenment and about his 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 thoughts that they cling to. And, and his, the images that we have of him, of course, are not I assume, based on what he might have looked like. But uh, what, what kind of evidence do we have of the Buddha's life? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and, and it is, um, I mean, that, the, the first two or three lives in, in, in my book are, are the most tricky in that respect. Um, I, I kept having to cut out phrases like, you know, not very much is known about this episode or this life. 
And you're absolutely right that the the first evidence we have of the Buddha postdates him um, by maybe 150, 200 years or so. Um, initially, we have actually images of the Buddha, um, and then later texts. We have images, symbols um, of his teachings, um, the Great Wheel, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but I think there is enough archaeological evidence. We don't know exactly where he was born, but we know roughly the area and the northern part of what might today be in Nepal or on the border between Nepal and India. So there, there, we know that he was a historical figure, um, and there is traces of that. But you're right that the the um, material on which we base our understanding of him came quite a while after. Now, that that is a constraint um, I had to, to, you know, just work with. But but I think even, even historians of the period... Um, are you know, there, there are still archaeological digs trying to find out more evidence of where he might have been born, the palace that he lived in, and so forth. So there are traces, um, and I think that for me that was a, a good starting point for the first historical individual that we can identify in Indian history. Doesn't mean we know as much about him as we'd like to know, but he did exist. Yeah, and he certainly lives um, in the lives of those who are impressed by his teachings and who follow him. And and you begin in the book by telling us about this Buddhist temple that recently is built in the Mumbai slum and what it means to a young boy named Siddhartha who has the name of the Buddha. Uh, and tell us about the Buddha and why this young Dalit boy or an untouchable would share his name and how important that is. Absolutely. I mean, th- th- that's what I find so striking that, you know, we tend to think of the Buddha as this rather um, abstract sort of spiritual teacher um, someone who's about transcending the world um, and its troubles. But really, if you look at India in the 20th century, I mean, the Buddha comes back um, in about the middle of the 20th century. He's rediscovered by um, a man called Ambedkar, Dr. Ambedkar, who was one of the writers of the Indian Constitution. And Ambedkar was born in Untouchable and all his life struggled to break down the caste system. At the very end of his life, um, after he'd rewritten the Indian constitution and so forth, he still felt so frustrated by the grip of the caste system that he converted to Buddhism. And through that, he's made the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings of equality um, really central to India's Dalits, the former untouchables. So I open the book not in a kind of ancient Buddhist temple, but in a very contemporary small one-room temple that's been constructed in a slum in Mumbai by Dalits coming together to put their money to build this, this room. And for them, for the Dalits... Uh, Buddha is a, 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 a message of emancipation, a figure of emancipation um, for breaking down the caste system. And I find that a very powerful, moving, if you like, appropriation of this spiritual life um, into a political context. And actually, then once you start to look at the life of the Buddha, you realize that even he had a political message in his time. He was a critic of the caste system. Uh, he did unorthodox things like bringing women into the fold, letting lower caste people learn to read. Um, so 
it was it was an attempt to show that the Buddha has a political and social dimension, and that's what makes him important to Indians today. Yeah. And when Mbeka uh, uh, becomes a Buddhist, uh, it's not a, a private act, or at least there's another act after that private act, perhaps, which is a mass conversion of his followers. So it had a public manifestation. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, it, it was this extraordinary moment um, in, in, in the mid-1950s where uh, Ambedkar and about 400,000 of his followers uh, converted um, to Buddhism. And these mass conversions continue to happen. Just 10 days ago, about 200 uh, Dalits in the western state of Gujarat converted to Buddhism and created great kind of social tension because the upper caste saw this as a challenge to their kind of Hindu uh, identity. So this continues to be um, a kind of political gesture of these mass conversions because it's a way of people saying, look, we're going to escape the kind of Hindu strictures and move into another um, uh, kind of belief system, but we're doing it for political reasons. Yeah, and it's called neo Buddhism, or is that something else? Um, uh, well, it, it's there are a variety of different names. Uh, uh, yes, I mean that is one of the names that's used by movements that that are con- linked with the Dalit um, politics, but um, it, it varies from region to region, really. Um, so if I said neo-Buddhism, it would mean something. And if that's true, that it does mean something, and that something that it means might have a political dimension to it that's quite explicit, does that put it at odds with the conventional or traditional Buddhists who come to India from Sri Lanka or come from Japan or come from uh, Southeast Asia? I think it, it does in the sense that the, this, the, the neo-Buddhism that you mentioned in, in India is very much about social change and the education and improvement in the life conditions of the the very poorest. Um, So, of course, there is the spiritual dimension. There are the teachings of the Buddha. But it's also really um, a a project of of social reform, which I think is not so much there perhaps in some of the other forms of Buddhism. Yeah. It puts into sharp contrast the kind of chosen life of renunciation that the Buddha took and the, the life uh, of of poverty and of la- lack of resources, access to food and healthcare and various things that have been put upon a population. That no, that's that's exactly right, and 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 it's it's also um, this movement of renunciation is is very powerful in many Indian lives, um, right from the Buddha to Gandhi, if you like, uh, you know, who's seen as renouncing uh, and, 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 and taking this, this. But what's, what's interesting to me is that many of those most powerful stories of renunciation are stories of individuals who've changed their world, who actually changed the real world around them. So it's not an escapism. It's a renunciation to make a point sometimes about the cruelties or the inequalities or the violence of the real world and to actually change that. Yeah, well, it's a perfect way to begin the the book, I uh, have to say, because, of course, we all think we know something about the Buddha, uh, but to give it this contemporary context for the living and the life of the Buddha today, not the next life, I don't think, but a life soon thereafter is the life of the 4th century BC figure Panini. Uh, completely unknown to me. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, he's 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 a, a great figure, um, and of course, if you Google his name, I mean, you'll get uh, Italian sandwich recipes. I mean, that's about as well known as he is. Um, uh, I was giving a talk at Google, and I pointed this out to them, and they were a little bit <laughs> <laughs> taken aback. Mm-hmm. But he's an extraordinary figure. Again, we don't know that much about him. What we have 
is this uh, brief but very powerful text that he left called the Ashtadai, which means the eight chapters. And it, it's an extraordinary compressed analysis of the Sanskrit language. And Panini lived in the, in the very northwest of India. Today it would be Afghanistan in about the 4th century BC. And he was a student of sans, the Sanskrit language. And he produced this, um, what today we would call a generative grammar. So it was an analysis of the language um, which boiled it down to the basic rules which he expressed in a code form uh, from which you could generate any possible sentence in Sanskrit. So not just all the sentences that existed in at his time, uh, two and a half thousand years ago almost, but any future sentence. Uh, so it continues today to be the one of the most powerful models of language analysis. Uh, Chomsky uh, and his group, when they first studied Panini, realized that Panini had done what they were trying to do today. Uh, and it's also interesting that many modern linguists uh, have actually been students of Sanskrit and have studied Panini as well. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, he, he did this in a coded form. Uh, so the English version of his book is about 1,300 pages. The Sanskrit version is, is about 40 pages. Um, and, you know, some have argued that that code that he developed is a kind of early form of algorithmic thinking. So there are some who say, you know, there's some connection between this analysis and software programming and sort of, you know, the, 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 the propensity that Indians have, or you know, certainly upper caste Indians have for, for uh, IT. It had another uh, effect, which was to, as you say, to bound together a huge civilizational territory, continental in scale. So it wasn't that everyone was speaking Sanskrit, but it was a language that became comprehensible, understandable to enough people that it created the borders of uh, of a kind of India at that time. Absolutely. And that's actually a really interesting point. It, it, it's something that the great Sanskrit scholar um, in, in, at Columbia, Sheldon Pollock, has, has written wonderfully about, and what he calls the Sanskrit cosmopolis, this vast space from essentially um, Western Afghanistan right down to Indonesia, um, which was a domain within which the Sanskrit language uh, uh, was understood and was a language not just of power and rule, but of literary expression and cultural creation. Yeah, yeah. So that gets us to an another life in the book. Uh, that would be the first great emperor who created a polity uh, with, with a defined set of borders around it. And he, he did so in part not only by military might, but by having edicts placed along the way so we can define the reach of the court. And that would be Ashoka, someone who I always thought I understood to be the first historical figure in Indian history, because, of course, there are contemporary documents, as it were, of, of his life and of his teachings, of his edicts. Tell us about his life and tell us about the role that those uh, carved, inscribed edicts had to play in defining India at the time. Yes, I mean, this is, again, a, a fascinating figure, someone who began his life um, as a, if you like, typical figure of his age, a sort of fairly bloodthirsty um, conqueror and ruler. And then um, after a particularly bloody battle where he sort of exercises his, 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 his cruelty quite dramatically, he seems to have a turn in his life and a reversal. He turns to Buddhism um, or, or, or to the beliefs of the Buddha because at that point it went, it's too early really to speak of Buddhism. They're more the teachings of the Buddha. And he produces his own version of the Buddha's teachings, um, uh, which he calls the Dhamma, or the, the, the law, um, Ashoka. 
And uh, as you say, he he ended ends up conquering a vast part of the subcontinent. Um, we find evidence of Ashoka right down into the Deccan, uh, as well as over in Afghanistan and you know down into Orissa. Um, so it's a it's it's the largest empire um, before the Mughals and the, and the British in in India, and. It's an empire that is defined, as you suggest, by these remarkable rock edicts that he puts, uh, that really mark the, the, the domain of the empire, but also are put within the empire. And in these edicts, there are about two dozen or more of them, around 30 or so. Um, in, in these edicts, he puts across a really remarkable message about the bond or the contract, if you like, between ruler and people. He makes clear that the ruler has obligations to the people to look after his people, to protect and and even consider the welfare of his people. But he also asks his people to treat one another with respect. So, you know, one of the remarkable edicts uh, is where Ashoka talks about different beliefs. Uh, in is his, that Edict 12? Or? Yes, that's right. Exactly, Edict 12, where he talks about different beliefs in his empire and says that, you know, you honor your own belief by respecting those of others, really, not by trying to kind of dominate and, and so on. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a remarkable moment. But at the same time, there's also an underside to it. I mean, you know, Ashoka had what he called a Dhamma, dhamma uh, essentially uh, superintendents uh, who were out there to put his message across. You know, you sort of think about it as kind of thought control to some extent uh, as well. So, you know, he was really trying to uh, get the opinions of his people under control. And, and the edicts themselves were not, as it were, decoded in modern times until the late 18th or early 19th century or so. So when did we lose access to the uh, language that yeah, with which they were inscribed. That's a, that's a, a really interesting question. I mean, Ashoka comes at the end of a, a dynasty that, that, that ruled in India. Um, and he, you know, after him, that dynasty and empire completely sort of dissolves. And, and he is forgotten. The language uh, in which the edicts um, and this, uh, are, are written, the script in which they're written, is forgotten for essentially as you suggest, uh, about 2,000 years. Um, they're then rediscovered by the British um, beginning in the late 18th century and then the early 19th century. And then people like William Jones and later James Princip um, start to work on decrypting the, the, the edicts. So they come back into consciousness, uh, in, in historical consciousness in the 19th century. And then they become very important for Indian nationalists. And the, 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 the chapter on Ashoka by showing how, um, Nehru and others found in Ashoka a kind of early sort of premonition of modern India. You know, here was an India that was tolerant, that was peaceful, uh, and that uh, had a state that cared about its peoples. And that took as its principal images uh, from the Ashokan columns, and in which they'd had the, the four lions, but also the Buddhist wheel. So one thinks of it somewhat as an irony that there would be as the symbols of what has to be a political realm reinforced by military might, uh, something that derives from the Buddha and derives from this great conversion that we think Ashoka had to Buddhism, to a kind of peaceful understanding of, of coexistence in the world. Do you see irony in the adoption of those images from Buddhism to the coinage, to the flag of India and so forth? 
There, there is an irony, but there's also a kind of logic to it, which is that, you know, the, the, the India that gets created uh, through the independence movement of the 20th century, led by Gandhi and, and, then, and then Nehru, is one that thinks of itself as a nation state, but a very different kind of nation state. It thinks of itself as um, being uh, one that recognizes great internal diversity, that recognizes the values of tolerance and peace and so forth. So in a sense, I think Ashoka offered this um, uh, very nice conjunction of empire and and uh, uh, peaceableness uh so it was very convenient um but you're absolutely right i mean once you start to probe that a bit there is an irony in it but of course the founders of india didn't want to really probe that too much they wanted the nice version of that yeah, story. Yeah, at a time in which hindu and muslim were breaking apart separating from each other the sense of there being an, a third way as it were a kind of that might be informed by a historical figure of great political and military importance as well as a great figure of of uh, religious importance that, that that's right and i think you know in that sense the, the buddha and the buddhist imagery as you suggest, offered a kind of um, neutral stance in relationship to Hindu and Muslim uh, resonances. Yeah. So, so I wait until now to bring into our conversation a poet, um, a poet Basava, 12th century poet and a religious guru uh, with uh, lines that he wrote to the god Shiva. I wonder if you would read uh, a couple of those first from your book, so we get a sense of the sound and rhythms of the translated texts of Basava, and, and why it was that you waited until the 12th century to give us a poet. Right. Well, I'll read um, these verses, which have been translated by the great uh, critic and poet himself, A.K. Ramanujan, uh, and this is Basava in Ramanujan's translation. Make of my body the beam of a lute, of my head the sounding gourd, of my nerves the strings, of my fingers, the plucking rods. Clutch me close and play your 32 songs, O Lord of the Meeting Rivers. It's, it's so beautiful and so evocative of the landscape and the setting and the sounds. You say that he became a leader of the Vachana movement? Yes. One of the, the interesting things um, that I found in working on this book is that um, so much of the important lines of criticism of society and politics happen in the form of poetry in India, in the form of verse, and not in what we would strictly define as, as, as the political realm. And Basava, I think, is a perfect example of this. So someone who was a very fine uh, wordsmith and poet, um, but who was also a very sharp social critic of the caste order. And the Vachana movement, which he um, establishes or is part of, uh, is, is it's, it's a form of poetic prose. It's using very much everyday language. So, uh, so Basava was getting away from high language or, or you know, literary language. He, he didn't write in Sanskrit, for example. No, he didn't. He wrote in Kannada. That, that's right, which is the language of the region in the south where he came from. And it was very much a kind of artisanal type of poetry. Um, it was the poetry that, that he felt anyone could make. Uh, it was open to anyone to make, if you were a woman, if you were lower caste, uh, categories that usually are excluded at that point in India from literary or cultural creation in this in this way. And, and you know, Basava was really the vachanakaras, as he referred to, the makers of utterances. 
It's this very, um, it's not a kind of glorified image of the poet. It's this everyday artisanal quality. We can all be makers of these utterances. Was it an oral tradition or was it written down by others? Did he write them down? It, it was very much an oral tradition written down later as with many of these things, um, but passed down orally. Um, and and you know he he has this um he has this wonderful phrase where he says Basava writes and these are his words if one speaks it should be like the dagger of crystal so this sense that every word had to be effective and chosen and, and somehow piercing mm-hmm. you say that he was uh, had a relationship with the bhakti movement tell us about that relationship and tell us about the movement itself bhakti is is a word that initially means really just to to share and it's a it's a tradition of um, poetry, uh, often bringing together people from the lower castes or marginal to the society um, to collectively worship, and very much getting away from worship directed by Brahmin priests by the upper castes, saying that one can, as an individual or as a collective group, have a direct relationship with God, not mediated by the priest. So it was a kind of challenge to the hierarchical ritual order in India. It's a kind of movement that has many different strands, um, but all of them are about this direct personal relationship with God, where you can, by offering a flower or a verse or whatever small token you have, be in touch with, with the divine and, and have the grace of the divine. Yeah. So, so we, we call him a poet. Uh, was there such a thing as a poet at the time? Would he be recognized as someone distinct from a, a myth maker or a, an interpreter of earlier myths of things? How did he make a living? How did he share his poetry with others? Were they written down? Well, it's interesting. Actually, Basava, uh, like like some other great poets, did have a daytime job. So he was uh, effectively he was trained as a, as an accountant. Really, um, he had to make like a living. Wallace Stevens, maybe. exactly, or you know Philip Larkin, the librarian, or Elliot, the bank clerk. Um, so you know he he did have to get his meals together. Um, um, but he, I mean, it's interesting, this, this question of, you know, whether he was thought of distinctively as a poet. Probably not. I mean, I think he was thought of as a, a guru kind of figure, a leader, a religious leader, um, who expressed his teachings in these very pithy, powerful verses. And in the end, um, you know, he, he, um, he's involved in a in a tragic situation where where um his radicalism uh, really leads to to his own personal undoing because he sanctions an intercaste marriage um between a, a an outcast boy and a brahmin girl um you know really breaking a taboo and and the king uh, is outraged um, by this. Uh, a riot occurs. Basava is expelled from the city, and then he dies. So, so actually, he suffered the consequences of his politics as well. Mm. Well, could you read one last poem, the one that you end his life with? Right. Um, so this is this is again is in the translation of A.K. Ramanujan, and uh, it goes like this: The rich will make temples for Shiva. What shall I, a poor man, do? My legs are pillars, the body the shrine, the head a cupola of gold. Listen, O Lord of the meeting rivers, things standing shall fall, but the moving ever shall stay. That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, so, So if we waited this long to get a poet, 
among your lives, uh, we, we come upon the first woman, Mirabai, who's also described by you as a mystic poet, uh, and she's also called Mira. She lives in the first half of the 16th century. Why did it take so long to get a woman into the mix? Okay, so this is this is um, one of the big issues that I faced in in producing my list of 50. Um, um, and it's very hard to find uh, records, primary records, archival documents uh, about the lives of individual women. Uh, if you go back beyond, say, 200, 250 years in Indian history, you know, Mirabai was the first figure whom I felt I could produce some kind of a historical account of. But having said that... Um, uh, you know, I was very clear that I was not only going to talk about women and issues relevant to women in the essays or episodes on women. The subject runs right through, from um, through the Buddha, uh, Mahavir, the founder of Jainism, Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism. Um, you know, the, the, the question of, of the position of women uh, runs through many essays uh, in, in the book. Um, so, so that's you know one way in which I I, I try to address the paucity of individual women um, in in the book. But you're right. I mean, it, you know, one has to wait uh, till you know the end of the 15th century, um, and it is a long long wait. Um, but but Mirabai is is this figure who again is is a real um, rebel in the social order of her time. She's born into the very rigid Rajput world of Western India, of Rajasthan. Uh, she leaves her husband. Uh, she challenges the sort of very strong patriarchal structure. And she takes to the road and becomes a sort of songstress and, and poet uh, of the lower castes and the marginal. And her songs are to this day sung. I was in Calcutta, um, where uh, there are many temples to the goddess Kali, and a group of women and men had come from Rajasthan to, to pray as pilgrims to those temples. And they were singing the songs of Mira, um, you know, late in the evening um, on, on the banks of the river. And it was astonishingly moving to hear uh, Mira's words being sung by this group of old, older Rajasthani women in Calcutta uh, who traveled, you know, all these miles. You, you call them songs. Was there music composed for them or was it just the rhythms of the language itself that gave them the songs? Well, as far as we know, with Mirabai, they were actually, she was actually a, a composer of songs, um, and and there was music. Um, we the, the the way in which she's described is that she she sang, she used what we would think of as castanets as kind of rhythm instruments, um, and uh, yes, so I, I I think we can consider them to be actual songs. And of course, today also they are sung in in Bollywood films. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so she would have been uh, at a time when the Mughals were establishing themselves, right? And uh, the first great Mughal empire, not the first first great Mughal, but the one that has such a commanding place in the history of the Mughals for most of us is Akbar, uh, the great Mughal emperor of the second half of the 16th century. Uh, tell us about his extraordinary life, the culture of his court at Fatehpur Sikri, uh, just outside of Agra, and why he is so admired among all the Mughal emperors today. Yeah, I mean, Akbar is really the the great uh, figure of the Mughal dynasty. Um, he is the one who establishes the 
wealth and material foundations which then allow um, his descendants, uh, Jahangir and Shah Jahan, to uh, produce these extraordinary works of artistic patronage, um, whether it's the Taj Mahal or the miniature Mughal albums uh, and the jewelry and so forth. But Akbar was um, really a brilliant military strategist. Uh, he, he, he was the one who established the extent of the Mughal Empire through conquest in the West and the South and the East. He had a grasp of human psychology and, and the nature of belief, I think, which was very important to the way the Mughals established themselves, which is to say he realized that uh, his empire extended over a broad range of belief systems, you know, Hinduism, but varieties of Hinduism. And he was not in a position to convert uh, his subjects to Islam. So he would have to govern in a way that acknowledged these different belief systems. He also realized that um, if the empire was to sustain itself, it would have to have the collaboration of those whom he ruled over. So he inducted uh, Hindu and other uh, military leaders into his armies. He also integrated them by marriage. Um, he himself, too. He, he himself, absolutely. He himself married a Rajput uh, princess. So these established the kind of the, the, the sinews of the empire that then continued um, he is, as you say, he's seen also as this great figure of religious tolerance. Now, I wanted slightly to question that in my in 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 the essay in in, in the following way that um, while I do think he he didn't try to impose his belief and he was very interested in other belief forms and in 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 this great city that he builds near Agra called Fatipur Sikri, he abandoned it at a certain point. Uh, it's not exactly clear why, um, but I. I venture a guess and you know it's usually said he abandoned it because of lack of water and so on but i think he also he abandoned it because there were changes in his own religious belief and it no longer he'd originally built it to mark the 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 site of the place where his spiritual master taught and then died uh, but later in life he broke away from that teaching uh, and so i think it ceased to have so much value to him but but uh, but fatipo sikri is this extraordinary place i, I describe it as um um uh, I write, you know, walking through this now desolate cityscape in the dry heat, you might feel at certain turns as, as if you were in one of M.C. Escher's drawings, reworked with the stark surrealism of Giorgio de Chirico. But it is like touring his mind, um, because it's this very syncretic, uh, light, um, but, but very impressive complex. And um, in one of the buildings in Fatipur Sikri is this room where he gathered scholars from different religious traditions to debate with one another. And he would, um, in a sense, adjudicate over which arguments uh, were more powerful or better. And the context for this, though, um, I think was a very specific one. Akbar lived at a time of the first uh, Islamic millennium. And this was a time of great speculation about what would happen after the millennium, the, the ideas about the Mahdi, about different kinds of versions of, of uh, belief in, in Islam emerging. And I think Akbar, to some extent, thought he might be the founder of a new kind of religion. And I think part of his driving interest in these diverse religions was because he thought he could be this great synthesizing figure. Uh, in creating this uh, new type of religion, um, the Din-i-Ilahi 
as it was called. Um, uh, so, so what I wanted to suggest is, you know, we shouldn't over-romanticize him, and we certainly shouldn't think of him as a proto-liberal. Uh, his his interests in religion were not liberal interests. They were interests because he was interested in religion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so we introduced the sense of a, a tolerant figure, uh, questioned as that might be by yourself and others. Uh, but we introduced after that another figure known for very different reasons uh, and, and adopted by others as a symbol of intolerance, I suppose you could even say, and that's Shivaji. Uh, so the arc of Indian history changed with the arrival of Shivaji in the 17th century, this kind of warrior king. Tell us about his life and, and why it's so important to the modern city of Mumbai, uh, which you bring into your chapter on Shivaji. Yes, well, Shivaji is the great patron saint uh, of the city of Mumbai, and indeed of that whole region. Um, you know, you, you fly into the airport named after him, the railway station, the great museum of the city is named after him. And he uh, has emerged in modern-day India as this great symbol of resistance to Muslim rule. Um, he, he came from the Maratha uh, castes, uh, although that's also an interesting uh, question, his his caste uh, strategies. Um, but he, he, he was someone who fought the Mughals, fought Aurangzeb, uh, the, the, the Mughal emperor, and was, you know, really seen as a thorn in the side of the Mughals. Um, he was a great warrior king. Um, but what, what interests me about him was the extent to which he made himself, uh, he was a sort of self-made man. And, and the way in which that story, uh, many young people in the city of Mumbai are now attracted by. I went to and talked to some of the young followers of a party named after him. And many of them are attracted to Shivaji because they see him as a kind of small town boy, in a sense, made good. Um, and, you know, they themselves, these these young men are coming from rural Maharashtra and they're working as security guards or gardeners or whatever, and they want to rise up the social order. And, and Shivaji's story is very much one of uh, someone who came from the lower castes, became this great military leader. And then in order to translate that into political power, he effectively had to raise himself in the caste order. So I describe in the essay this extraordinary ceremony that he uh, performs in one of his forts. And the forts are in these very dramatic, hilly landscapes of the Deccan. But he performs this ceremony in 1674 where he invites 11,000 people to his fort to see him essentially being turned into a Brahmin king. Uh, so he pays these Brahmins to come from Benares and elsewhere. He pays them extraordinary amounts in gold and silver and so on to raise him up the caste order uh, in order that he can uh, you know, have the status as well as the power that he'd uh, accomplished. And he's got a resonance uh, in the contemporary uh, world of India, uh, and as you mentioned already in Mumbai, in particular, you mentioned about the airport and so forth. But you also write that there's going to be a statue of Sivaji, twice the size of the Statue of Liberty, that will be built at the entrance of the city's harbor. What makes him and his teaching, besides this fact of a sense of a of a, a young guy making good in the world, what makes it so resonant in Mumbai as opposed to, let's say, and I'm guessing, as opposed to say Kolkata? Yes. Well. Um Mumbai has had uh, for some decades now um, a very powerful nativist movement of sort of sons of the soil. And it's emerged, of course, uh, 
partly caused by the fact that Mumbai is such a great city of migrants. Uh, it is one of the most mixed and diverse cities in India. People come from all over the country, uh, south, north, etc. And that in turn provoked this nativist uh, Sons of the Soil movement, which began in the 1960s. Originally, its target was South Indians, who were seen as coming in and taking the jobs of the native sons of the city, the Marathas. Uh, it's since moved its opponents and targets to Muslims. Uh, and today, the the party uh, that represents this nativist movement, it's called the Shiv Sena, um, sees kind of Muslims as outsiders. And for this party, for this movement, Shivaji is seen as the you know epitome of the native son, the son of the soil who, who fought, defended his territory, kept the outsiders away, um, and upheld the traditions of the Marathas. So I think that's what uh, makes him such a beloved figure there. Yeah, be- beloved and dangerous too, I suppose. Sure. Well, I think, you know, these nativist movements are always uh, very problematic. And, and um, you know, we're seeing them emerge all over the world. Uh, and, and yes, it is dangerous. So we, we've started um, out with the introduction of, of Ashoka. We, t- we talked about the kind of formation of a land-based polity, of a kind of extent of authority. And, and, and then we have talked with uh, Akbar reinforcing it now many, many years later. Uh, then we seeing a sense of ethnic fragmentation uh, of that polity in the 17th century with Shivaji, but uh, recently also, as you say, continuing uh, that dynamic within India of a kind of formation uh, of of a state and a sense of nationhood and, and the constant threats to the integrity of that state. And the kind of regionalism that you've talked about, too, with regard to various poets and things having local authorities or local reputations. How much is that part of the Indian story itself, that sense of contest between uh, the local and the national? Well, I think you touch on something really central uh, to the movement of Indian history, um, that, if, if you like, sort of dialectic or tense relationship between central power and regional identities and regional rivals to that power. Um, and... It's really, in a sense, um, also the central dynamic of 20th century Indian history, um, which leads to the partition of India, which precisely in, 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 in many ways was a contest between the central power and regional claimants to power and who, who should decide about the decisions to do with different religious groups and so forth. So I think um, the dynamic you, you talk about between center and region is one of the central structuring ones of Indian history. Uh, And it's never resolved. Um, And even today, you see a pendulum swinging between New Delhi and the regional governments. India is a federal system, uh, 28 states, 29 states now. Um, And it's a very complex uh, union. And it's constantly in contest. Um, So, And it can't be resolved. I mean, I think it's in the nature of it. And then you introduce a figure in, at this point into the book, and that's Tagore, who has a reputation that becomes an international reputation. He becomes a great figure, not only as a kind of uh, cultural leader of an increasingly uh, discussed independent I- nation of India, uh, but also beyond the nation to to a large cosmopolitan view of the world, uh, of, of a kind of transnational uh, view of the world. And and the contest then between now, not just the regional and the national, but between the national and the international. 
Absolutely. I think you know, that's one of Tagore's uh, very distinctive uh, aspects, that he is a figure of Indian national rediscovery, if you like. But at the same time, he's a deep critic of nationalism. Uh, one of his most powerful pieces of speaking and writing were lectures on nationalism that he delivered uh, in, in, in 1915-16 uh, in, in China and Japan, uh, America and in, in India, in which he critiqued nationalism as a sort of parochial form of violence that necessarily led to militarization and so forth. At the same time, he was a great patriot. Uh, he was a great patriot of his own language and culture, Bengal, but also of, of India, um, but always interested in the rest of the world. He established a university where he brought teachers from China and Europe and, and so forth. He, he was involved in bringing the Bauhaus to Calcutta in 1922. So he was very interested in, 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 in the world. And in, the, in, in my book, I talked talk particularly about his his interest in expanding individual freedom because he always thought nationalism at the end of the day trapped individuals it forced individuals to subordinate themselves to the collective uh to some figment of the nation uh, and and Tagore was above all a believer in individuality and individual freedom and indeed love uh, became the great form of expression of individuality for him. And, and in some of his great novels, he talks about how women in India are trapped by not being able to choose who they love or follow their love in a free way. Yeah. He, he becomes and such an international figure that he is the first Asian Nobel laureate. But his reputation waxes and wanes over the course of the 20th century. Tell us about the waxing and waning and has it risen of late? Has it been restored yeah, I mean, he, he he because he's he's a complicated and and cantankerous figure in many ways in relation to nationalism. Uh, you know, in India today, he's he's revered and he's certainly very much loved in his uh, Bengal state, uh, uh, in West Bengal and in Calcutta, and, and and his songs are sung. He, he's very much part of everyday life. Um, He's also, of course, the author of the national anthem of India. So, you know, people uh, are very aware uh, of him. But I would say that the, the message that Tagore uh, taught, which is, you know, the parochialism of nationalism, the, the need to allow people to love and express themselves freely, those are not messages that are uh, fully <laughs> accepted in India today. Um, so like many of the people I write about, um, while they're adulated in some way, their message has been turned around or, or compromised for, for present-day consumption. So we, we get to the point of, of independence. And so you have the great fathers of independence in the book. You've got Bose and Gandhi and Jinnah and Ambekar, but you don't have Nehru. And so tell us why not Nehru and tell us how many emails and letters have you received <laughs> for having not included Nehru in the book? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I mean, um, yes, I, I, this is a, a, a charge and a question I'm, I'm constantly having thrown at me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say at the, in the beginning of the book that uh, I think Nehru uh, would have um, been gracious enough to give his place to some other figure uh, who, who gets to get in the book because he's not in it. Um, Nehru runs through the book. He's like Hitchcock in his films. He appears in a number of the essays. So right from the 
essay on Ashoka uh, to uh, Sheikh Abdullah or, or Krishna Menon or Indira Gandhi or, you know, in, in many of the essays, Nehru figures. Um, and I, I, I've been working on, on Nehru in another context um, and at some point I, I'll, I'll write something about him. And I, I, I just felt that um, I could address some of the issues uh, that, that Nehru was concerned about, about diversity, about the kind of nature of power and the state and so forth, through other figures. Um, so I, I didn't. Uh, I decided not to include Nero. <laughs> yeah. So we've we've made our way through some two thousand and um, and more years of Indian history. I'm painfully aware of just how much we've left out, but I'm also painfully aware of how the clock is ticking on this podcast. So I want to skip rapidly ahead, and I want to concentrate on two other lives, uh, and those are the lives of artists. Uh, and the first is Sajet Ray, the filmmaker, and then M. F. Hussein, the painter. Uh, tell us about Ray's life first, and tell us, I think I'm right in saying that he went to Tagore's school outside of Calcutta, so yeah. a, a link to Tagore. Yes, very much. I mean, I think to, uh, Satyajit Ray is very much a, a product of that same Bengal tradition uh, which Tagore uh, helped to create, uh, which is to say very rooted in Bengal, in, in the language and landscape and, and environment of Bengal, but also very cosmopolitan. So, you know, Ray was as much a follower of French and American cinema um, from his early 20s as, 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 any, as he was uh, kind of knowledgeable about his own Bengali culture. He went, as you say, to the university Tagore set up, Shantiniketan, um, and then became obsessed with film, with, with Western film. How, how did he see the films? Well, the Western the, films in particular. The, there was something called the the, 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 the the film societies sort of culture in Calcutta, and and and, and he was um, responsible uh, with others for setting up the the, the film society there, uh, the the Calcutta Film Society. And they used to, with great complication, get these reels of film, Frank Capra, John Ford films, etc., um, which they would have to kind of negotiate with the American consul uh, or embassy and, and so on and get these reels. Um, so it was really a, a, a society of devotees and lovers. Um, and then he got a chance. He was sent to London on a work assignment in the uh, early early fifties, I, I believe it was. Uh, the, the, and that's when he got great exposure to uh, more Western film. And then coming back to India, um, by coincidence, the French director Jean Renoir came to make a film, and came uh, to India. To came, make... to, came to India ah. to make a film. That's right, called The River. Um, and Ray uh, befriended Renoir, um, and that became a sort of very, um, you know, impactful uh, connection for Ray. And he started making his own films really on no budget at all. He had no money. Again, it was an entire labor of love. Um, and the, he made this, this first trilogy of films, which became known as the Apu uh, films, Apu Sansar, uh, which became a huge uh, success in the West. Um, but this was the thing that, you know, Ray for much of his life was much better known in the West than he was in India. And I think this this frustrated him. But, uh, you know, now I think a younger generation of filmmakers are really starting to see Ray as a great figure in the Indian tradition. What, what is his legacy today in India? I think he he has been he's really being uh, recognized today as one of the major figures. Um, younger directors in India are uh, have 
learned a lot from him. Uh, the Bengali director Rituparna Ghosh um, was one of the people who followed in in his wake. Uh, and I think now the, uh, my sense is that he's he's coming into his own or will come into his own in in, in years ahead. Um, uh, when people will will really see just how revolutionary and challenging he was as a filmmaker. Mm. Now we have to come to an end, I, I, but I'm afraid, uh, sadly enough, for, certainly for me. Uh, but I want to make certain that we have in this uh, podcast the life of M. F. Hussein. He, he lived a long life. He's a great painter. He lived some 94 years. He was 30 years old when India became independent, and in that very year, he and three other artists formed the Bombay Progressive Artist Group. Uh, what were his cultural and political views in the run-up to independence? And then, of course, as a Muslim, how did he respond to partition? Hussein is, is you know, one of the towering figures of contemporary art in India. Um, and it, it's interesting because I think he, he, he often was put in positions uh, where he was asked to talk about politics and about his religious views and so on. But he he was never very comfortable doing that. He, he, he kind of avoided um, or, or didn't want to go into um, these issues too deeply. And actually, it's interesting, I, I, I talked to one of his uh, contemporaries, um, Christian Kanna, who was a painter of the time, and, and you know, was asking about what was the political climate in the 1940s at the run-up to partition and after. And, and you know, his sense was that, that as artists, Hussein and others were not Oddly enough, not that concerned uh, about the politics, and, and and they sort of somehow wanted to keep away from it uh, and out of it. And Hussein himself, um, you know, was always uh, quite discreet about his own religious um, beliefs. And I mean, he was he was a devout, he was a believer. He did pray and so forth, but he never made a big thing of it. Yeah, in, in the 1960s, therefore, a decade more and more after partition, uh, he has an international reputation. Uh, and then by 1971, he's invited to exhibit in Sao Paulo alongside Picasso. Uh, a couple of questions. How did the world come to know of his work such that he could be invited to Sao Paulo to exhibit alongside Picasso? Uh, and how was it that he, other than through illustrations, in magazines, did he come to know the work of artists such as Picasso? Did he ever see, did he travel to Paris? He, you know, unlike some of the other uh, Indian painters who, uh, of his group, um, who actually left for the West, um, Souza, who goes to London, Reza, who goes to Paris, um, uh, Hussein was very much located in the city of, of Bombay. I mean, he traveled through India, but Bombay was very much his, his kind of home. He started out as a painter of cinema billboards there. Uh, and he, I think he really thrived in the, the bustle and street life of, of the city. So he wasn't, uh, uh, you know, he traveled internationally later, and of course he ended his life in exile. But, but um, he was also, I think, a great self-publicist. So that's, in a sense, what got him so known internationally. Um, he, he turned up at the right places. He knew the right people. He cultivated uh, the right friendships and patrons. So, you know, his own son uh, spoke of how he loved the media glare. So, so you know, Hussein liked that. Um, and that, I think, helped to get him a, 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 an international uh, reputation. Um, but he, he was not that 
concerned with being part of a kind of global artistic elite. Uh, he, he was very much rooted in his city. Um, he was interested in what was happening, um, but in, in painting around the world. But he, I think he followed it probably through, through magazines and images and, and so forth. Yeah. Well, that personality that he has, that outsized personality that he had, uh, his affection for or attraction to uh, press coverage got him some trouble. Uh, in 1996, when a group of Hindu nationalists attacked his paintings, and they were objecting to their nudity, that is, to his being a Muslim painting these Hindu goddesses in the nude. Uh, and and he um, he was even taken to court, I think, and his case got as high as a Delhi high court. And there were calls for his life and dismemberment, even the, the cutting off of his hands. And there were prices, that, there was value attached, monetary value attached to those pieces of his body. Um what was that like? Was that as as threatening as it sounds to him? And did it send the art world into convulsions at the time? Yeah. Well, I think I think you know the the last years of Hussein's life are one of the great kind of tragic and worse testaments to to some of the challenges to cultural expression in India. Um, you know, just as he, he didn't really address partition directly, um, one reason uh, why he felt that he could paint Hindu goddesses and use Hindu imagery was because Hussein in that sense was really a secular figure. I mean, he really believed in the secular project of of post-independence India. Um, And he believed that, you know, any citizen could draw upon uh, the the culture uh, and civilization of India to make art, to express themselves, that it didn't belong to any one group. I think he genuinely was part of that that generation. So, you know, when he painted uh, Hindu goddesses, um, he thought that was just a natural thing for an artist to do. It wasn't. I don't think he saw it as a political uh, uh, challenge or, or provo- provocation. But of course, he was doing this, as you say, at a time from the mid '90s onwards when there was a rise of Hindu nationalism, and so he became a ready target for it. And indeed, the, you know, he was his shows were attacked, uh, artworks were destroyed. He was himself, as you say, threatened um, with with physical violence. And even when the Delhi High Court uh, defended him and you know said that he he had every right to free artistic expression, the political elite in India didn't really stand by him, didn't really give him the kind of protection and, and, and support that he needed. So in the end, he left India. He went into exile um, uh, to the Gulf uh, and, and indeed died in Qatar, um, you know, having taken citizenship there. And I think that's one of the great, great tragedies um, of, of Is Korea. he memorialized in some way in Mumbai? The great thing about Hussein was he, he was a great public artist as well. So you'll see his work in many different parts of the city, in public spaces, in hotel foyers, etc. And he's certainly known. He, he's the only Indian artist uh, who was known by people on the street, really, um, in the city, certainly in the city of Bombay, um, um, of Mumbai. So, uh, you know, taxi drivers or whatever would know of him. And he was a real character. So in that sense, he's memorialized in people's memories, uh, which I think is a great thing. Yeah. It is the way that most of the lives in your book are memorialized, as people over the course of centuries have memories about how they heard of so-and-so or how they came into contact with the work of so-and-so over the course of these many thousands of years. So it's a fantastic book. It's a book, and it's a podcast series, and it's a radio series. 
best, I think, taken in the bite-sized pieces in which you wrote it, because you can each day at 14, 15 minutes, you can get a world of a life, and you can have that then over the course of an entire year. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's been absolutely great talking with you about it. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>